the, the loftiness of, of God, when we talk about the infinite distance between God as the creator and us as the created ones, uh, there is an infinite distance, and that distance, uh, that otherness, is the transcendence of God. And yet, annexed to the transcendence of God is the most remarkable aspect, and that's the closeness of God, his eminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, his closeness to us, uh, his personal relationship with us. He is not distant from his people. He is right at hand. He knows us. He loves us. He cares for us as his children. And so we talk about both the transcendence of God and the eminence of the personal nature of God. He's designed his creation in particular to have relationships with him, not because he needed that. He did not need anything. God never needs anything. He's sufficient in and of himself. But he created all that he's created, including humanity, so that he could have a relationship with us and we could have a relationship with him. And we talked about the might of God, the power of God, uh, and so we, we dealt with that. And so the question would be, how do we respond to these things? And, and one of the key dimensions that I made last week, and it bears repeating, is that as we look at Scripture, a fundamental and recurring question that we should ask always as we study the Scriptures, whether it's in a worship service, whether it's in our private devotions, whether it's in a small group Bible study, whatever the case may be, what am I learning about God? What, how, what, how has God revealed himself, uh, his, his person, his works, his attributes? Uh, what am I learning about God? And we should always be asking that question because the scriptures tell us everything that we need to know about God. We would not know about him in, in a in meaningful way unless he revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us. We call that the doctrine of illumination to understand these things. First Corinthians 2 tells us that the natural man, that is a person outside of Christ, an unregenerate person, doesn't really grasp the things of God simply because their heart has not been made new. And we call that regeneration. But, but the Holy Spirit enables us to understand the things of God. And that's a wonderful gift. It's necessary because absent the work of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be grasping what God has said about himself. So how do we respond? And, and at the top of page one of the notes, there's an author by the name of Bruce Milne, and he said the Bible's teaching about God calls for a deep self-abasement of ourselves. That's talking about the humility that we should have before our sovereign God. His awesome majesty, his highlight our obligation to offer him uh, adoration, submissiveness, and worship. Uh, and I entitled this study The Majesty of God for a very specific reason, because the name that is used for God in Genesis chapter 1 is, in the Hebrew, it's Elohim, um, and it focuses in particular, it's a plural expression. Uh, it's, I mentioned this before, it would be a, a bit of an overstatement to say that simply the use of Elohim uh, gives us clear teaching on the Trinity. It doesn't. Um, it would clearly indicate a multiplicity of persons within the Godhead, uh, particularly when we look at Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image, uh, certainly. But would that be specific as to three persons in the Trinity? No, but it would show us that there are, are multiple persons, and the rest of the scriptures give us clear teaching on the personalities, the persons in the Godhead. 
But Elohim is a, a plural, and most of the commentators would say that it's a plural of majesty. It's designed to communicate the, the majestic character of God. And that, that name for God is used uniformly through chapter 1. And in chapter 2, there's another name for God, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But our response to God is Psalm 96, verse 4. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Um, And and then 96, verse 5, the Lord made the heavens. It's so helpful when we look at the passages, and the Psalms are replete with references to creation. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention a number of them. But throughout the Psalms, as they speak of God as creator, the response that the Psalms call for us to have, number one, is to recognize our submission to him because he has made us and we are not our own, that we are the sheep of his pasture. We are his people. Uh, it shows us his majesty, his power, and so we are to trust him, to adore him, to praise him, to exalt his name. And uniformly, when you look at the scriptures, that's the, the response that we're called to have. And it, it, it shouldn't be a difficult response for a child of God to have that response when we consider who God is. It should be instinctive that we, the more we meditate upon who God is and the fact that he's made everything literally by the word of his mouth in the space of six days and all very good, uh, that our instinctive response, our immediate response would be to praise him, to exalt him, to hold him in the highest esteem, to worship him, to submit to him as our creator. So that's, that's a, and actually at the end of the scriptures, you find it's almost like a bookend. At the beginning, we're called to worship God, and at the end in Revelation 4, uh, John writes, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. This is in the middle of the page. Four, and there's an explanation. Why uh, does he ascribe uh, majesty to God and, and worship to God? For you, God, created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4, verse 11. And so you see this little uh, particle four, and it's saying the response that we have to all that God has made is to exalt his name, to worship him. And so there, at the very end of the Bible, we have that, and at the very beginning of the Bible, we have that. So the, the scripture also talks about self-existence. There's a number of ways in which God describes himself. There's three basic types of names for God. Uh, one name is, is, would be a propositional name. That would be a fact about God, something, a, an attribute of God. This is not in the notes. I'm just simply giving this to you. But uh, an example of that would be God everlasting, God almighty. Uh, certainly speaking of the attribute of God is, is his eternality or his power. A second one would be a historical name. Uh, for instance, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, an example of that would be Genesis 22. And that, that's an example where Abraham was told to take his son, his only son whom he loved, uh, and to take him up to Mount Moriah and to offer him. And God provided, in lieu of his son, a sacrifice uh, to spare his son and to demonstrate that God would provide uh, a substitute, a, 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 a sacrifice in lieu of Abraham's son. And, and Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And so there's a name that relates to a historical incident. Uh, another name would be a personal name. Uh, and for instance, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the God of the fathers. And so all of these names of God are very meaningful because they tell us something about God, who he is, what he has done, what he's like, uh, the relationship that we can have with him. All of the many names of God are so indicative of who he is, and they reveal various things about him. 
Well, we come to a particular name that, that occurs in Genesis 2, verse 4, and uh, we're still in chapter 1, but I'll just make mention of this. But the name in, in chapter 2, verse 4 that's used, uh, if you've got uh, a, a King James, for instance, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Many of the other translations do it that way as well. When you see it spelled in all caps, Lord, that means Jehovah, or we could say Yahweh. I'm not sure that we really know quite candidly how it was pronounced. It was a name that wasn't literally pronounced, but we would have the consonants Y-H-W-H. Uh, and so Jehovah is simply, uh, the translators took the vowels and added, the, the, or took the, counts, uh, the consonants and added vowels in between them, and that's how you come up with Jehovah. But it's the self-existent name for God, the covenant name for God, his memorial name. And so that's given to us in chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Um, but uh, John Calvin, as he's reflecting on the way that God has revealed himself, says that God attributes to himself alone divine glory because he is self-existent. That's really the essence of when we see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, as God revealed himself, for instance, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 with the incident of the burning bush, uh, what, what name shall I give for you, God, when I, when I tell Israel uh, that I've been sent to deliver you from bondage? And God said, I am who I am, uh, the self-existent one. I need nothing to, keep, to, to, to provide for my needs. I, I am who I am. I'm eternal. I'm self-sufficient. I'm all in all. And, and so uh, he reveals himself as eternal in that way. And so uh, he's the one that gives life and, and substance to everything that he's ever made. So it's interesting in that, in that incident of the burning bush, we really don't have a, a way to describe anything that is ultimately self-sufficient. So God used a material analogy, a sort of a metaphor in a bush that was burning but was not consumed. It didn't have any fuel to, to, to sustain it. It wasn't consumed. It just kept burning, but it never changed. And, and so you have a picture albeit an imperfect picture, but a, a metaphor, so to speak, of God himself, because a, uh, Moses saw that, he was drawn to that, uh, and, and so God revealed himself to him and said, I'm going to send you to uh, Israel uh, to, in bondage to deliver them. Uh, and Moses said to him, well, by what name shall I call you? And God said, I am who I am. It, it, by the way, it's, it's uh, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, before Abraham was, do you remember what he said? I am. And so he identified himself with that covenant name of God, the self-existent memorial name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. So understanding the self-sufficiency of God is, is really uh, something that we gain from looking at Genesis 1, because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there was no beginning for God. There, there was no time when he was not, and there will be no time when he isn't. He's always been. Uh, and if you're trying to sort of mentally grasp that and you're having trouble doing that, that's very normal because our minds are finite, and to uh, grasp something that's infinite with our limited capabilities is, uh, is, is, is a real problem. It's a challenge. So we simply take these things at face value that God has always been. He's the only uncaused cause. Uh, everything that else exists in the entire universe, anything else that has ever existed or will exist has been caused, but not God. He always has been. There was never a time when God has not been, and he always will be. He's eternal. He's self-sufficient. And so that calls upon us to realize a number of things. One of them, this is at the bottom of page two, 
is, is that God doesn't need any help. There, there was, sometimes uh, you'll hear this notion that God created uh, man simply because he, he wanted to have, um, that he needed anything, he needed fellowship. God has never needed anything. Uh, God does not need our help. Um, and I'll use an example for that. When we share the gospel, um, throughout the history of, of the church, capital C, not Christ Fellowship, but the church in general, um, there's been all sorts of efforts on people's parts to sort of assist God in bringing people to Christ. Uh, raising your hand, filling out a card, walking forward, uh, singing 14 verses of Just As I Am, whatever the case may be. Uh, none of this is instrumental in someone coming to Christ. None of it. It, it may create an emotional response, but it will not create a new heart. And, and so everything that God does in bringing new life is entirely his work. We, we have no, really no part to play in that other than the very important role of being used of God to do something to serve him. Could God save all of his elect people without us? Absolutely. But the fact is that he chooses to use humble folks like us, servants like us, to be the purveyors of his message, to, to transmit the gospel. In fact, not only has he given us the opportunity, he's commanded us to do that, uh, to take the gospel forward. So does he need us? He doesn't need us. But the remarkable reality is that he chooses to use us. And that's both humbling and it's encouraging that we realize that. So the God of all creation, who created everything that is simply by speaking it into existence and ultimately is populating heaven with redeemed souls, uses folks just like us to be the couriers of the good news and, and to realize that when you're sharing with the good news, who is it that changes that heart? It's God that changes the heart. It, it, we simply cannot do it. So that gives us really uh, some breathing room. I hope you realize that, that when someone isn't responding in a way that's encouraging or you're not really sure what's going on, that's really in God's courthouse to deal with that. Uh, he, he's the one that ultimately will change that heart. Today, those of you who know Christ, God did that entirely in your, in your life. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, there's a, a Paul uses creation as a metaphor uh, for what God does with a new, new, new heart. Uh, the one who called light out of darkness has worked in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4 deals with that very image. And so when God creates a, a, a believer from a non-believing state, that's a miracle. It literally bringing life out of spiritual death. Only God can do that. And what a, what a privilege that he uses us to, to do that very thing. So that's, um, that's over in, uh, on page three. Uh, another aspect, sort of in the middle of the page, when we consider God's self-sufficiency and all of his attributes, uh, is to say that knowing that, that God is who he is, the ultimate uh, goal in all of our lives as believers is to know him fully, to know him in an increasing way, to have communion with him, uh, and to be satisfied in him, to rejoice in him. Uh, there's a passage in Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. Uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this in what? That he knows me. That's the ultimate goal for humanity is to know the Lord God Almighty, uh, to worship him, to have fellowship with him, to commune with him, to be his child. That's, that's the ultimate fulfillment for any person is to know God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know God. And so thirdly, um, is the knowledge of self-sufficiency should humble us so that we pray with a true sense of our need. 
Um, many of us, I think, we, we know Isaiah 40, 31. Um, it's, it's reproduced in, in its context. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay, so we've got that all memorized. But do we know the preceding verse? What is it that gives us the strength? Well, look at the bottom of page three. In the context, the Lord is the everlasting God, the self-sufficient God, the eternal God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then you come to Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Isn't it helpful to look at context uh, when we look at these precious verses that many of us have memorized and maybe you've got it on your refrigerator at home or on or some kind of a bookcase or something. You've got this in, this inscribed maybe on a wall in your house. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew. And that's a precious promise. But that promise is rooted in the character of God. Why is it that the one who waits on the Lord will renew his strength? Why is it that he will mount up with wings like eagles? Why is it that he will run and not be weary and walk and not faint? Well, the answer is very simple, because the God who spoke the entire universe into existence with a word simply because he desired to do it, that's the God who gives us everything that we need. Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or even imagine. If that doesn't fuel confidence in your prayers and and cause you to, to... your fears to, to, to dissipate, your anxieties to begin to, to sort themselves out in your lives as you begin to meditate more and more upon the all-sufficient God who knows us and that we can know him, we can call upon him, the one who gives us strength, the one who sustains us. Does that not encourage your hearts to meditate on these things? And, and when you need wisdom to know that, that the God who is infinitely wise that we can ask him and he gives to all of us without reproach and it will be given? Does it not give us confidence that when we need strength and, and perhaps we're weary both physically and maybe spiritually, maybe emotionally as the case may be, that the promise is there that those who wait upon the Lord, not in, in a passive way, that's not the way the scripture talks about waiting. Waiting is an earnest expectation. It's sitting before God and saying, God, here's your promise. I'm pleading your promise. I'm looking to you as the all-sufficient one, the one who is eternal, is almighty, is infinitely wise, is loving, and governs the entire world, and there is nothing too hard for you. The arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. That you, God, are the one to whom I am. I bowed my knee before you, and I'm asking you for help. And he hears you, and he answers those prayers. That's the God that we're going to. If that, that should fuel your confidence in prayer. That should cause, as I mentioned earlier, those those anxieties, those worries, those uncertainties to sort themselves out because really God's in control of all of this and he does everything perfectly wise. And he, and he always does what's good for us and for his glory. And, he, and we know that, that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. There's purpose in everything that God does and his purposes are always good always wise. Are they understandable at all times? No, that's because we're finite. And it's because God is God. And so as we realize that he's the creator of all that is, we bow the knee to him and we say, Lord, I submit to you because you made me. I'm yours. I'm not God. You're God. And, and once we get that frame of reference in place, a lot of things sort themselves, virtually everything sorts itself out in our lives. 
So, so we also talk about the immutability of God, and just this one last aspect, and it's related to the self-sufficiency of God. The reason that it's related to the self-sufficiency of God is that we as human beings have a succession of moments in our life. It's the passage of time. Um, God is eternal. He steps into time. He operates in time, but he's outside of time. God, God sees the beginning from the end. He literally sees the, the moment he created the world. To the, he sees the future. Even in one glimpse, God sees all of it, all of history, the past, the present, the future in one glimpse. We see things one stretch at a time. God is not limited that way. God is perfectly wise, perfectly omniscient. There's no surprises with God. God does not learn. There is no succession of moments in God. God has is, is never changed. Who he is is who he will always be and all, who he has always been. There is no change whatsoever in God. We call that the immutability of God. That means the promises of God never change. That means his purposes never alter. That means that what he's foreordained will always come to pass. The, the, when we talk about the decree of God, it's defined in one of the Reformed catechisms as the decree of God is his eternal purpose according to his, his eternal decree according to his eternal purpose for which for his own glory he has foreordained everything that comes to pass. Everything. He, he brings, his promises are always certain to be delivered. There is no disappointment in the, in the plans of God. He's never frustrated. His intentions are never, never derailed. And so we look at this uh, aspect of immutability. And top of page 5, um, while every human source of trust is eventually bound to fail, God himself will never fail. Brothers and sisters, we live in, in times where if, if you're hinging your confidence on human institutions, whatever the nature of those human institutions are, if it's the government or the educational institutions or the media, whatever your hope is, that is a frail vessel to be leaning upon. Uh, that, is, that is absolutely going to fail. God will never fail. His purposes are sure, and they are, they're wise. A.W. Pink says, God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. Malachi 3.16, I am the Lord, I change not. He, he cannot change, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. He only can say, I am that I am, from Exodus 3.14. And his purposes never fail. So his will is always there. Well, I'd like to transition now to this section on what I call Genesis 1 and science. So the way this was mentioned in the bulletin that went out is the days of creation and how we know what the days of creation are all about. Just briefly, there's a tendency to say the Bible is, is about theology, it's not about science. And, and there's a, a very real sense in which that's true. But every subject that God addresses in his word, he speaks with perfect accuracy. So when he talks about creation, he speaks of creation exactly as it took place. And, and so we need to recognize that uh, when God speaks, he always speaks without error, uh, without any ambiguity on these things. And, and so at the top of page six, uh, there's a scholar by the name of E.J. Young. Uh, inasmuch as the Bible is the Word of God, whenever it speaks on any subject, whatever that subject may be, it is accurate in what it says. The Bible may not have been given to teach science per se or as such, but it does teach about the origin of all things. And so when we look at Genesis 1, it clearly tells us about creation. 
Does God give us all the details about how he brought things to pass? He doesn't, but he tells us enough about what we need to know, and that is, he, he said, let there be, and there was. We, we use the term ex nihilo, they created out of nothing. And we talked about creation by fiat, by declaration. He said, let there be, and there is. And that expression, let there be, is used on a number of occasions. The only other, only other way in which it's expressed is, let us make man in our image. And God uses a, a different way of describing man in his creation than he talks about creating light, uh, creating the seas, creating the firmament, creating the animals, creating the birds, whatever. He uses a special expression when he comes to man. Let us make man in our image. Uh, and so uh, we have these the tension, so to speak, I'm sort of at the top third of, of page six, uh, between the so-called findings of science and, and scripture. Uh, and and it's, it's just helpful for us to understand um, that science is a constantly changing thing. It's, it's, a, it's a process of discovery. If you consider what was once considered to be scientifically rigorous about the nature of the earth, the, na- where the, the placement of the earth relative to the sun, uh, what was revolving around what, um, and you'd say, well, we don't believe that anymore. Why? Because there's been more information that's been gathered. Uh, science is operating with finite capabilities. Uh, science will never be able to plumb the infinite simply because you've got finite scientists. Uh, and so uh, we must remember, as E.J. Young writes, that what is presented as scientific fact is written in many cases from a standpoint that's hostile uh, to supernatural Christianity. One of the premises uh, in, in science, for the most part, is called uniformitarianism. That is, that that the principles that are now at work have always been exactly the same. They've never changed. Uh, That eliminates any kind of an external imposition of a a divine activity. It's it's a closed system. And so when we talk about uniformitarianism, that's the Bible doesn't talk about uniformitarianism. It talks about God speaking things into existence out of nothing. That doesn't fit in the context of a scientific construct. Science has no place for that. It's not a scientific construct. So we also talk about settled science. Um, Opponents of Christianity will often argue that evolution and other theories concerning our origin are settled beyond agreement. Uh, But then there's a phrase down here, Mark Ross says, those who think that biblical teaching must give way to scientific teaching whenever conflicts arise perhaps have not given adequate attention to the corrigibility of scientific findings. When you talk about a child that is incorrigible, that means that a child is not subject to, they can't change, right? They're difficult. Well, it, when we talk about the corrigibility of scientific findings, what he's, he's just using an expression that guess what? The, the, the conclusions change from time to time. It's, it's not settled. Uh, today's accepted scientific truth might well turn out to be tomorrow's discarded theory. And so our ultimate authority is what God has said. So what has God said? Uh, let's go over to page seven. Um, when we talk about the understanding of creation, uh, until about 300 years ago, and I would say even maybe 200 years ago, um, the, the, the Christian church as a whole had no um, problem dealing with the description of Genesis 1 and how God created all that exists. It, it, there was really no ambiguity about that. Um, I will point you out to a statement um, on the page uh, 10 and 11 and 12. Um, let me just take you over to page 11. And I'm, just, I'm going to have to be brief on this. This is a statement from 
uh, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary on uh, the work of God in creation. It's called Six Days Means Six Days. And this is the history of the interpretation of Genesis 1. Um, the first bullet point, it talks about rabbinic commentary. Um, today, if you were to look at a Jewish calendar uh, and it's dated from creation, we would be in year 5784. They date from creation. Uh, it's been the traditional Orthodox Jewish understanding of creation that we are young earth, a little less than 5,800 years. Uh, second bullet point, uh, the New, New Testament church and scriptures offered no revisions of this view and nowhere do the text advocate some of these other views like framework or day age. Third bullet point, the earliest post-canonical commentaries. Uh, post-canonical would be uh, beyond the scriptures. These would be the, the, the writings of the church fathers, for instance, uh, early commentaries on the scripture. Um, they either advocated a 24-hour view or Augustine had a rather unusual view. It was instantaneous, uh, but no one was looking at long creation. Uh, next bullet point, until the Protestant Reformation, only two views were propagated. The Augustinian view, which was instantaneous, and it was later discredited, of course, and the liberal 24-hour view. The next bullet point, the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Beza, adopted a, a, a constantly a view 24 hours, and they repudiated the Augustinian views. Now we're in the, the, the Reformation. Um, Prior to the Westminster Assembly, that'd be 1647 roughly, uh, the leading Puritans and others reputed the Augustinian view instantaneous and taught a sequential normal day. Uh, next bullet point, the Westminster divines, uh, the, the highly learned, these men knew their scriptures, they knew the languages. Uh, they either felt no need to comment on the, on the length of days, or if they did, it was without exception, 24 hours, normal days. None have been found among any of the Westminster divines that took a different point of view. And following the Westminster Assembly bottom point, the testimony in the American Reformed tradition, Jonathan Edwards, etc., followed the view of that there were 24-hour days. So this has been the history of the interpretation of Genesis 1. Now we're up into the 1700s. Top of page 12. By the mid-19th century, uh, certain uh, Presbyterians... Uh, began to conform their exegesis to the ascendant science of the day. That's when, that's when this happened. What happened in the 1800s? Charles Darwin and, and the geologic work began to come into play, and, and the commentators began to um, modify their points of view to accommodate uh, the evolutionary points of view. And in the early 20th century, numerous evangelicals and some seminaries became overtly concessive or accommodative to secular cosmology. So I just went, I wanted to skim through that quickly with you simply to establish that any view about the days of creation other than 24-hour days is a new innovation in the history of the church. It's only really been since the mid-1800s that this view has even taken place. So that said, why do we believe in normal days? Back to page 7. Several reasons, and these are extremely compelling. Number one, uh, this is sort of the bottom half of the page. Number one, the literary genre or style of writing of Genesis is prose. It's history. It's not poetry. It's not allegory. 
Uh, there's no poetic narrative in there. Uh, if the creation history is an allegory, then the narrative concerning the fall and everything further that follows can also be allegory. Uh, one commentator said, Moses, the author, shows no consciousness of speaking otherwise than literally. The, the readers, uh, in, in Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the scripture, and he wrote it during the wilderness war, uh, wanderings uh, when Israel had been uh, removed from Egypt, uh, literally in that 40-year period. That's when the Pentateuch was written. And the first readers of this would have, would have read this as history, as prose, uh, and not in any other way. Secondly, if you look at the grammar, and you, you'd have to ask Jeff, our, our linguist, to, to explain this to you, but it's very clear that Genesis 1 describes a sequence of activities, a very orderly sequence. There's a particular way in which the Hebrew language is constructed that uniformly talks about a sequence of events. So we're not talking about something that is an occurred here and then along in the parenthesis and then something else happens and, and the like. It, it literally is an orderly sequence of events. Third, the number of, of the creation days identifies them as normal days. I don't know if you remember the term ordinal day, uh, numbers and cardinal numbers. Uh, cardinal numbers would be one, two, three, four. Simply talks about the number of something. An ordinal number would be first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. The days in Genesis 1, the first day is, is cardinal. It's day one, and it defines a day. Morning and evening, a day. So it defines a day, day one. Every other day is second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, every single one. When you find that construct in this word yom, which means day, used in that second, third, fourth, fifth construct, it, it always talks about normal days. And, and so the reading would be uh, very clear. Uh, the next uh, top of page eight, um, th th these days, how were they described? Evening and morning. Well, that, that talks about a, a regular sequence. That talks about the rotation of the earth, right? And, and so some people, we'll talk about this more next time, but some people struggle with the fact that light existed before the creation of the sun. That's not a problem. It, in, in Revelation 21, it talks about there will be no need for the sun or the moon in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because God is the light. Did, was there such a thing as the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament when God, the, the outshining of his glory, and it was just astonishing? Of course, all that's required for light and darkness is a rotating earth and a light beam. Does that require the sun? It does not require the sun. God created the sun later, but God himself was the light in the, in the early days of creation. That, that's not an unusual concept. It literally fits in exactly with Revelation 21. And, and so you've got this revolving globe uh, that, that God made, or mass that he made, and you've got this evening and morning that would be a 24-hour a day with the, the rotation, the speed of rotation of the earth. And then this is really uh, a fifth point, uh, is that when you've got the, the scriptures talking about creation later, for instance, in Matthew 19 about um, divorce and Adam and Eve uh, being joined together. Uh, it talks about a literal creation. Um, and every time the scripture talks about creation in the New Testament, it speaks of normal days. It doesn't speak about ages. 
the most important point, uh, well, among the most important points, I'd like for you to see this, turn in your scriptures to Exodus 20. I, I want to walk through this as briefly as I can with you. And to me, this is, is very compelling. Exodus 20, it's the Ten Commandments. While you're locating that, in, in Exodus 20, you have Ten Commandments. In, the, in Commandment 1, and then 5 through 10, you have a commandment without a rationale. In Commandments 2, 3, and 4, you'll find the word for, F-O-R, which gives a rationale for the commandment. And so the fourth commandment is the Sabbath day commandment, honor the Sabbath, and there is a four there. And you see that, for instance, go to verse 8 in, Rome, in, uh, in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Uh, in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner. Look at verse 11. For, here's the reason, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word that's used in verse 11 is the same word that's used in verse 8. The reason that that God is giving for the observance of the Sabbath day is that six days you labor. How would that be interpreted? Ages? Millennia? No, days. A week. Six, you, you work six days, you rest on the seventh. But, but the Sabbath, but in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. It's the same construct that he's using to talk about the work week. The work week is not several million or billion years old. The work week is, is six normal days with the seventh day. For some of you, you work five days. Maybe you work less than that or more than that. But, but, but the, the six-day work week is, is not ages. It's not indefinite periods of time. Uh, this word yom is used. There's another word that could have easily been used that talks about eras or periods or, in, or indeterminate eras of time. That's not the word that's used. And so you, you've got God himself giving the explanation for the Sabbath day, and he says the construct that supports all of this is the, the work week. The six days, you, 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 know, you can work. Why? Because God created everything in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Do you see any reason to have a different view on the work week and, and the creation days if the same word is used in, in, a, in the same paragraph for the same commandment? There's no reason whatsoever to take another point of view. I look at this, and the only reason that I can imagine that someone would take a non-literal point of view is, is they, they find some difficulty with, with how do I re reconcile this, so to speak, with science. Let me give you a, an interesting point of view. Uh, down at the bottom of page 8, I was not familiar with this, but a fellow by the name of Vern Poitras talked about a, quote, mature creation. Um, and he makes the point, when, when Adam was created, uh, on the sixth day, do you, how do you think he was created? As, a, as an infant? No, he was created as a full-grown man. Why? Because he was introduced to his wife, and, and they, were, they, they became married. And he was an adult. There's an example he doesn't use, but I've used it for years, and that is in John 2. What did what happened when Jesus turned water into wine? Typically, wine takes years to, to ferment and become... This was the best wine they'd ever had. This was not two seconds old. 
This had all of the aspects of, of fermentation that had been going on for a long period of time. How long did it take for that to make that? No time at all. God said, let there be, and there was. So you had wine that had all of the appearance of perhaps years of fermentation. But it didn't take years of fermentation. So the fact that you may find geologic evidence, so-called, for a, 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 a long period of time, is it conceivable that God would create the appearance of age for whatever reason? Of course. And when he created man, he created man as an adult. When he, when he spoke uh, water into wine, he created wine, that, water into wine, and the word is oinos, it's a normal word for wine, it's not talking about anything else, it's a conventional word for wine, and it had all the appearance of age. Was it old? No, it was brand new. So it, it, to me, this, this, it's, it's not difficult, brothers and sisters, to look at this and to say um, that um, if, if we look at uh, scientific findings that show evidence of a long earth or an old earth, and that doesn't mean that the scripture has to bow the knee to scientific findings. It just simply means that we look, as the notes say, that when we look at science, we look at it through the lens of scripture. Calvin made that point, that we have a lens that gives us the ability to discern truth and error and to, to determine when you have a bias and a preconceived notion that's beginning to flavor the, con the conclusions that you have, science ultimately bows the need to, to the scripture. And so the scripture gives you all the lenses that you need to properly understand the word. Well, that was pretty quick, but, uh, but I wanted to uh, at least give you five reasons for uh, normal days. I, can, I chose, by the way, not to give you the rationale for day, age, analogical days, framework hypothesis. Uh, it, it, I, honestly, I think it's more confusing than, than helpful. If, if you want the information on those points of view, I'll be more than happy to give you why they come into existence and why they don't make sense. Um, but but the, I, I chose simply to tell you what the Bible says and why uh, we should accept it at face value. Because I can assure you the early readers of, of Genesis 1 would have understood this exactly as normal days. There's no doubt about it that the Israelites, when they're reading Gen uh, this book that Moses wrote, would not have come up with any construct other than a normal day. No, and, and so when, when God speaks, he doesn't speak in a perplexing way. He doesn't speak in such a way that it requires some super, uh, you know, well-educated person to understand what it means. It's designed for the ordinary person to grasp it. And so the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to understand what he's written. Well, that's a bit of a, a, a rush through, but I hope it at least gives you some reason to have confidence that what the Bible says is clear. And we shouldn't be apologetic about this. It's not a naive understanding. It's, it's a biblically faithful understanding. It, it's, uh, it, there's no reason to be embarrassed uh, by this. Uh, if anything, science should be embarrassed that it comes up with, with these other points of view. Uh, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that.